Let's let's uh, let's go ahead and and get going here. Um, I thought that was pretty good. Some of you have seen that online. <laughs> yeah. Okay, hold on. We got one question here, and I'm going to let you sit in here. I'm actually very afraid. Okay, okay. Uh, then I'll repeat it. I just want to share with you the Bible version. We're talking about King James and the, all the English Yeah, King James, versions. right. I just want to share with you that in other languages, for example, the Chinese Bible, uh, the version, they're actually, um, it's more than that. The, the one we're using is based on Hong Kong Bible uh, Society. And that one, the translation doesn't say it's based on King James. And when I read the Chinese version Bible, I often feel some of the words, they actually translate directly from the gr Greek. Ah. But then, then I think it's mixed because I have the information, it's called Herhoban. So Herhoban is it's not even, uh, you cannot say that's uh, King James Chinese translation, no, it's another one. So I just want to share with you when the missionary doing the wor work around the world, there's actually when they apply, for example, they, they serve a Chinese speaking mission, the, the, the Bible version they're using, they're not the King James version. Ah. Yeah, yeah I, what she's saying is that in the, the, the Chinese version is not being drawn from the King James. And so, in, uh, and so those translations aren't working. It's, it's, it's being drawn from a different thing. So there, I wasn't aware of the Chinese side of that, okay, that is not King James. It sounds like I'm slamming the King James. We love, we love the King James, that there's a poeticness to that, and I, and I always want to have that alongside. I want to see what the King James Version said. But in terms of understanding it, I think we need to be augmenting it a lot with these other versions. Uh, and other cultures are definitely doing that, like China. Yeah? I just want to clarify. Are you talking about the Thomas Weymouth Greek one, or the Weymouth? Oh! <laughs> this is the Thomas Weymouth BYU Deseret Book version. Yeah, there's a Weymouth, right, that, that's Middle Ages. Yeah, that, that, that's a much older version. No, this is... Nice clarification. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's get rolling here. Um, so, since we're talking about old, old people. Yes, we will. Let's get into uh, Eusebius, or Eusebius, or however you want to pronounce that. He was writing in the second century, and, and here's, what, here's what he said. We found in the writings of former days that Jewish authorities in Jerusalem sent round apostles to the Jews everywhere, meaning in the dysphoria, so all over the Mediterranean and in Babylon and all that, okay, where there were a lot of Jews still practicing, uh, but they weren't in, in Palestine. Uh, we found that Jewish authorities in Jerusalem sent round apostles to the Jews everywhere announcing the emergence of a new heresy hostile to God. Uh, and that their apostles, apostles meaning witness, uh, armed with written authority, confuted the Christians everywhere. Paul talks about the fact that every time he would go in and he would set up house churches everywhere, that he was always bothered by the fact that there was this group of people 
following him from town to town uh, that would then attack uh, not just uh, the Jewish converts to Christianity, but they would also stir up the Greeks against Paul. And so they were messing with his work. And so he'd have to come back in around them and kind of redo what the rigidists, they call, rigidly, uh, or the, the circumcisionists was another term that they would sometimes use for that, to try and, and, and clear up the confusion. And that's what uh, Eusebius is saying. Their apostles armed with written authority being actually sent by, they weren't just like taking this up as a hobby, they were being sent by the Sanhedrin. Go get them. Go push back against this. Confuting the Christians everywhere. Uh, now, let me ask you, why would they do that? Just let's keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to point out, in uh, 1983 in Portugal, where I served my 19-year-old mission, yeah. there was a particular sect that would follow around the missionaries and try and spoil everything that had been done by any missionaries in terms of contact with anybody else. Uh, yeah. It was consistent. <laughs> yeah, they'll do it. Now, in, in first century Judaism... Let's keep in mind, why are they doing this? Power. Power. It was a threat. What kind of threat? No? Why would they be so invested? They're just worried about losing converts? Kind of, yeah, in a backdoor way. It was, it was kind of about the Romans. That, that remember, as far as, the, the, and when we, in this next, uh, this next semester, when we get into what Paul understood, what Paul was teaching, and why he taught what he taught, remember that there was a sense of um, Israel, that they, that they were the covenant people, and that God had entrusted with them this covenantness that they were to then kind of save the world by virtue of their responsibility as Jews and, and the chosen people. And that that was a big enough covenant that says, and if you don't do your job, uh, God will then destroy you. So, so remember, for a lot of these, didn't matter whether it was the Jews in Alexandria or Ephesus or Babylon or Judea, there was a sense that if we have a group of Torah-believing Jews and they're allowing wickedness in their midst, whether it's heresy or whether it's uh, sin, the fear was that, that they would be physically destroyed. It's not just like that synagogue would, be, would have like a you know, 20% activity rate. <laughs> It was the fact that we are in physical danger, perhaps from the Romans or from the Babylonians or from whoever, that in order to save Israel, we must kill off other voices. And that's, again, I think that's what Laman and Lemuel exactly were doing in trying to kill their dad at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Isn't that what Saul was doing too? That Saul, who was zealous for the law, is trying to save Israel by killing the, killing the Christians. Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. And zealously and, and believing that God had given him a direction and he being given names by the Sanhedrin, go get these guys. And that, that's why he's, he's on his way to Damascus to go do exactly that when the Savior comes and visits him. Okay? This is off the, 
off the road yet. I know that obviously they had idols, the Romans had idols yeah. that they worshipped. But did they have a specific, was it just one kind of religion or was it? The, the, the Romans? Yes. Oh, the, the pagans, think about pagans as being, um, it's going to sound bad, but I, I'll say this anyway. Um, if you ever go to San Francisco, go to the main cathedral right at the top of the hill in San Francisco. This is, it's a very kind of a progressive, liberal kind of thing. And you'll see that they, they're trying to incorporate everybody's religion in the same cathedral. So not only do you have like a cross on the inside, but you've got like a, a pagan maze on the outside that you can walk around and you'll see Judish, Judaism symbols and stuff like that. Like we will be everything to everybody. That was Roman paganism. It was, you bring it all. Now we're not quite, we'll, we'll sort of put up with the Jews a little bit because they've got their thing. Just don't mess with the things that we're doing and we're going to be broad-minded enough we're accepting everybody. We're just accepting. Of, and that's what you bring another God that until, as we'll talk about when we get to Acts 17, when Paul brings in a very particular thing that that's what gets, thrown, gets him thrown off of Mars Hill. Uh, that there was something that they couldn't swallow. But I will tease that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Baha'is will do this. It's like we're very accepting. We, we want a broad, uh, big tent. Big tent uh, spirituality. You bring whatever you bring without a lot of tenants that are going to distinguish you. And, and very much they were that way. Okay? But for Judaism, because they were the covenant people with the covenant words and God had a special relationship with them, you couldn't allow that kind of. And that made them kind of discriminatory. And that's what raised up the ire of the Greeks who just thought you were close-minded people. And the Jews says, we've got to do this. It's our calling. And we've got to put down Christianity. And I'll, and I'll tell you how it got spun here in a second. But anyway, so they're, they're sending apostles around to all of these Jewish areas where they're accepting Christianity. And the question is, what, what is it that they're confuting? What is it specifically that they have to make sure that they push back against? Yes, exactly right, guys. It is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the big linchpin uh, to everything. Let me ask you, why? Why do you think of all, of all the things that they could push back against, why would the resurrection of Christ be the big, uh, this is the hill we're dying on. Uh, sorry, that's a bad analogy. Well, because the Jewish leaders were so instrumental in bringing about the death of Christ. Part of it, they would be implicating themselves, and, right? And because uh, they were so sure that he wasn't who he was, and this just knocks out all their arguments. Ooh, yeah. So, so it goes against their arguments and it goes against the fact that they're implicating themselves in his death. Okay, but? If you can, if you can dispel the idea of resurrection, then he didn't fulfill the messianic things. You could physically, okay, yeah, he was a great prophet or a leader. Same with John the Baptist. Right, you could get right. 
because I don't even think they know about the atonement. They're just looking at this is the, the John the baptizer drove us a little crazy, but he's not running around with his head restored. Right. <laughs> you know, that, and just the idea of resurrection in general, though, is, is, a, is a major step forward, right? The, he could raise himself, he could raise you. <laughs> and had he said he was going to? Yes, he did. Okay. So what we're going to find is that the idea of resurrection is the dividing line. It is, we can put up with certain things, but then and now. Resurrection of Jesus and resurrection in general is the dividing line. Uh, and we're going to... Right, right. Okay, so uh, uh, we're grateful for uh, uh, Eusebius because he actually was able to uh, record what the what was it that the Jewish leaders were saying? What was their spin uh, that they were telling people in Ephesus and Corinth? Okay. Okay. Well. It's pretty specific, and I, and I learned some things from this. I had not read this. Yeah. What does the Jewish religion teach about resurrection? Death and about resurrection. So, it, are they killing their own argument if they believe in life? Remember, for Pharisees, they did believe in a physical resurrection. Sadducees didn't. So there was some sense of it, of of people being resurrected. So it was it wasn't just resurrection; it was the resurrection of. Jesus, because who could create, who would, who would do the resurrection? Only Jehovah can do that. So not only is it just the idea of resurrection and what that means, but it is that this person resurrected, this person said he would resurrect, and he was, and it happened. That was the problem. That is, uh, and and so here's so here give you so here's a spin yeah. Wasn't there a whole bunch of people resurrected and a whole bunch of people at the time of Christ? Yeah, so there were many witnesses of that. Yes, and and, and we'll talk about witnesses in a second. It's funny though we never hear much about that, didn't it? That suddenly got expunged from any records. We don't have the records of all these people going into town and who were dead and they're all, now all resurrected. At the time of the Sanhedrin, they did sort of have one that wasn't a resurrection, but it was really kind of troublesome because it was somebody that had been dead, and now he was back. And that was Lazarus. Oh, my gosh. We can kind of explain Jairus' daughter a little. We can sort of explain in Nain the widow's son. But we're still, we're still struggling with that. That's still pretty amazing stuff. But Lazarus, oh my gosh. Okay, that's, that's crazy. But here's the original fake news from the Sanhedrin. Uh, you're going to love this. Jesus was born, they said, in a village, the illegitimate child of a peasant woman and a soldier named Panthera. Yeah. The woman was divorced by her husband, who was a carpenter, for adultery. Jesus himself immigrated to Egypt, hired himself out to a laborer there, and after picking up some Egyptian magic, returned to his own country 
and full of conceit because of his powers proclaimed himself God. That's the story. That's what the that's what the the rigorists were going from town to town saying. Oh, has Paul been in town? Let me tell you the real story. Here's here's the real deal. I love is that is how Satan works. That there's elements of truth to every lie that he tells. Sure. Yes. Absolutely. In other words, we're going to take some of that and then we're going to expand it and put our particular spin on it. Was she pregnant out of wedlock? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but you're going, well, how do you explain that? Well, depends on who's telling the story. Um, so, it gets, so, then we finish the story. His so-called miracles were unauthenticated. His prophecies were proven false. And in the end, he was not helped by his father nor could he help himself. Echoes at the cross. Uh, his disciples had taken his body and pretended that he had risen again and was son of God. That's the story. And if you tell a story long enough, over and over and over, you can make it true. Okay? Not that we ever do any of that today in any of our political campaigns. I mean, this reminds me so much of our day. Yes, it is. This ought to be really reminiscent. Okay? This is what they were doing. Okay? And Joseph Smith had the same set of stories, and still does. There's still stories of Joseph Smith, and, you know, we don't follow that money-digging guy. Yeah. All right. All right. So that's, that's the story that's going out. Now, what is it specifically that they're having to make sure that they refute, though? The resurrection. The, again, the resurrection becomes the linchpin. If he is resurrected, if there are witnesses to his resurrection, this story has a flip side to it, and, it's, and some of it, it the falsehoods are, are winnowed out, and the truths are borne out, and he is who he said he was. But it's only true if he was resurrected and there are witnesses that can say he was resurrected. That's why this becomes such an incredibly big deal. Okay? All right. So, here was the grand plot. Uh, and it sounded something like this. See, over the years, various preachers and... and uh, had declared themselves the new king of Israel, or God, or the son of God. All would free Israel of the pagans. Uh, there was, a, for instance, there was, a, there was a man that rose up in, uh, in uh, 5, <coughs> I think it's 5 BC, up in Galilee, uh, and it's something that Mary and Joseph would have known, would have been aware of, a man named Judah that rose up and tried to attack Sephorus, the, the, the Roman city there, and, they, over, and they, they took over the Roman city for a little while. Uh, the Romans had to rise up. The legion put all of this down. Problems? The microphone is just... Is it being wonky? Okay. So Judah in, in 5 B.C., puts this rebellion together. They attack Sephorus. Sephorus pushes back. The Romans capture them. And then what they do, let me put it farther down here, Winnie. Um, 
they then capture the forces and they crucify 2,000 members of Judah's sect and they're all along the road between Nazareth and Sephora. There are 2,000 crucifixions that are left there for a long time. Don't mess with Rome. But this was a good example of all these prophets that would come through and say, I will be either the new King David or I will be God. Either way, the Romans are gone. And so you would see these come through from time to time. Um, now, so they were used to having that happen. Now, it's true that even Greek and Roman mythology was filled with demigods. Half man, half god. Yeah, they would come and they'd have these special powers. Think Thor in the Avengers. <laughs> okay? One of those guys. Um, but Jesus of Nazareth both declared himself the Christ and that he would be killed and resurrected. That is a new threat. There's not a single one of these prophets by history that's waltzing around saying, yeah, you guys will kill me and then I will be resurrected. That's a new wrinkle and it's a very dangerous kind of thing. And somehow it's got to be either refuted or approved. And by the way, you'd know it or not. It, it would be true. Okay, so, so here's the deal. And let me, let me hop back just a little bit into Deuteronomy to give you an idea how they framed this plot in the Sanhedrin. Deuteronomy 22. When someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang him on a tree. His corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him the same day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. That is really important. If someone is hung on a tree, whose curse? God's curse. So if you hang somebody on a tree, where are they going after this life? They're going to hell. Could not they have stoned Jesus the same way that they stoned Stephen? They kind of get a slap on the wrist. They weren't supposed to. But they stoned Stephen, and the Romans said, we really wish you wouldn't do that. But they got away with it. They would have stoned the woman found with adultery in the temple, but they were afraid of the crowds. They could have stoned Jesus on any number of occasions. Why didn't they do it? It wouldn't assure that he was going to And the only way that we go to hell, according to Jewish law, would be what? He's got to be hung on a tree. He's got to be hung on a tree. That Not only that does fulfills Jewish law, and it will be a message to any followers that said, this guy who hasn't resurrected, he's going to hell. He must, we must set it up in a way so that he will be hung on a tree and that puts, to, puts away all arguments against him. Does that make sense? Got to do it. Okay? So they're going to they're going to uh, they're going to work it so that the Romans will then hang him on a tree. Now you can see why I think he was literally hung on a tree, so the, nobody would miss the symbolism, not just a couple of crossbars. So, but this is a big enough deal. Look at uh, 
Uh, so you must not defile the, the land the Lord your, your God is giving you for possession because you left this guy up who's obviously going to hell. Don't leave him hanging around. Now, Peter, though, is going to poke him in the eye in, in Acts 11. We are witnesses of all that he did in the land of Judea and Jerusalem and what? They killed him by hanging him on a tree. You hung him on a tree. We are witnesses of his glory. We worship the resurrected Christ. He didn't go to hell. He was your Messiah. That's, that's the poke in the eye. You tried it. You hung him on a tree. And he's back. <laughs> okay. Now... As a side note, because of all of this, when we start talking about witnesses, could not have Jesus, on that morning of resurrection, if we were writing the screenplay for a movie, on the morning of resurrection, who would be the, like, the first person that Jesus would appear to after his resurrection? If it's a Hollywood movie and we want to up the drama, either the Sanhedrin or or the Pharisee or see, I keep thinking Pilate. Would that be great? Think about that moment in the movie. Pilate's going about his day, and boom, there is Jesus standing in front of him and going, "I'm back." <laughs> I almost gave it an Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back, but I won't. Yeah, he's doing his morning jog, yes. <laughs> now you're thinking, right? Yeah, and, and by the way, could not have Jesus appeared if he'd wanted to to Pilate to begin with? Sure. Or show up in front of Caiaphas' house? I'm back, yeah. Pilate's wife could have been standing there saying you should have. Yeah, yes, yeah. And Pilate's wife would be standing right next to him going, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I told you. And you never listened to me. <laughs> but no, you had to go, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, he could have done that. But he doesn't. And, and that, that's going to play a big role, I think, in who he decides to be his first witnesses and why. But, but there, there's the deal there, is that they're trying to emphasize this idea of that being hung on a tree would have cursed him and mo hopefully would have shut up all of the, his followers. Um, that was the idea. Okay? So, so literally, what, it, what was it they were responding to? What had Jesus taught? Well, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Well, forty and six years was this temple in building, and thou wilt rear it up in three days? Really? And then he says, Okay, now, just so you guys will know, and, and John's going to hop in here and go, Okay, let's make sure even the readers get this, so you don't miss it as well. He, but he spake of the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. The disciples weren't sure. Who was sure of what he had said? That he would be risen in three days. Who absolutely got it clearly? The, the women get it, but even ahead of them. See, the, a lot of these disciples, then they believed the scripture afterwards. Who got it from the moment it was said? The next day after his death, the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered to Pilate and said, Sir, remember that this deceiver said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise again. They got it. They understood clearly what he was saying. In three days, I will be back. Now, we obviously don't think he can do that, but I don't know. He's going to have... That, that Lazarus thing really has a spooked. <laughs> That's a little scary. He might in some way that we don't understand pull. The only thing we can figure out, how might that occur? Well, let's see. Order the tomb to be guarded until the third day so that his disciples do not come and steal him and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And that last deceit will be worse. Worser than the firster. <laughs> okay. They got it. And the only piece they could put together is he said he's coming back. It only makes sense to us if his followers come and get him. So that's what we think is going to happen here. So make sure you guard the two. Okay. Is that the reason why then that the stone was rolled away? Mm -hmm. That it was the, the Jews that did it because then they could say, well, his disciples came and rolled it away. Well, they could. I mean, the stone was the stone was really rolled away so that he could get out. <laughs> well, that's true. He could. You're right. But it was also then evidence that anybody could go in and take a look at it as we'll talk about with Mary Magdalene in just a second. Okay, I had a voice. So your reference on the Deuteronomy 22-22 is actually Deuteronomy 21. <laughs> Thank you. So it's 21 verse 22. Chapter 21. Okay, and, and that one I got out of the NRSV. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, there, so there's the problem. Um, now, so now again... The resurrection is occurring, and the question that we just raised is, who's going to be the witnesses? Because there's a job that falls to witnesses. Who do we have witnessed this most incredible event in all the history of the worlds? This moment, okay? Well, let's look at the Jewish law of witnesses. A lone witness is not sufficient to establish wrongdoing or sin. Otherwise, it's he said, he said. Eh? Regardless of what the offense he may have committed, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a false witness testifies against someone, accusing him of a crime, both parties to the dispute 
must stand in the presence of the Lord that the priests and judges who are in office at that time. If you're going to, if you're going to testify in court, we've still brought this forward. If you had to do this today in a court in Collin County, and you're gonna, they're gonna, you're gonna testify. I, I swear to truth, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What? So help me God. They're trying to kind of take that out, but the idea was that if you swore on a Bible, we still we still swear a new president in with their hand on the Bible. Why? Because they're going to uphold. They're having the same belief system that they will hold themselves accountable to God. If you're going to perform any ordinance in this church, who has to be present for the ordinance? Besides the recording of it, what else do you need? Witnesses. One witness? Two witnesses. Okay? There has to be witnesses that can attest that this thing occurred. Okay? Now, the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and I like this. If the witness is proven to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. This is the reverse golden rule. It is. The golden rule is actually built off the, the idea of false witnesses. The golden rule says, I'm going to do to my brother as I would hope he would do to me. If I have committed false witness, then what is supposed to happen? What's supposed to happen to me is what I wanted to happen to the one I was testifying against. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to testify against uh, Bruce Jones because I want him to go to prison for five years. If it turns out that I'm, I'm, I'm found to have been false witnessing against Bruce Jones, what, haps, what has to happen? I go to prison for five years. Okay? In other words, so, so can you see why the idea of thou shalt not bear false witness is not just don't tell lies. You are bearing false witness against who? God. You're doing it in the presence of uh, God, his angels, and these witnesses. <laughs> you are bearing false witness. That's, it's a big deal when you witness because the idea is I'm not just kind of telling a little lie in court. I am lying to God with him as a witness and the angels that are watching. False witness is bad stuff. That's bad juju. Okay, does that sort of make sense? Okay, so who bears witness to the resurrection becomes really critical here. Now, also rabbinic law, to make this even better. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and the boldness of their sex. I'm not sure what the boldness is. <laughs> well, uh, in their context, I'm not sure what boldness meant. Are they going to speak too loudly? They speak too clearly? Is it, you think it's too clearly? 
and wide. Why don't you want to have women be the witnesses? Why do you not allow them to bear witness? Here's, here's the pr problem. It is probable that they may not speak truth either out of a hope of gain or fear of punishment. No, they don't. And, and if a woman is seen as kind of a, a suppressed class, mm -hmm. then if she's going to bear witness, you don't know if she's trying to get some kind of gain or if she's afraid of being hurt, she's doing it out of fear. It would be a little bit like in, in the days of slavery, we're not going to necessarily have a slave come and testify in court because we don't know what he's... He, because he's a suppressed class, we don't know what he's after. Obviously, he couldn't just be speaking the truth, so we can't just take him on, on, on his word alone. And that's, that was true of women back then. Yeah, Brother Colton. So, so I think from a stereotypical perspective, if you just take a son who has done something wrong, a woman is more likely to sacrifice herself for the benefit of the son, whereas a man is more likely to let the weight of the action fall upon the son. I think that's a good. I think that's a good point. That fear, either fear of punishment, or I would add one more that maybe there was a sense that women would be more sacrificial in terms of. I'm not. It's one of the reasons we're not going to have a. In court, you can't. You're not supposed to testify against your spouse because it seemed to be tainted as if you will spare the truth to spare the person. So, yeah, DJ. Yes. Yeah. So you can see how it's all set up, right? And that's why I say, wouldn't it, from just from a straight up standpoint, you would think it would make more sense to go to the to the most uh, to the people you would expect the most to be the best witnesses in the town. It makes sense if if what what would happen if Pilate rolled out and said, uh, Jesus appeared to me this morning. Well, not sure. What would happen if Caiaphas went? Wow, was I wrong? <laughs> Jesus appeared to me today. They go, oh, okay. You know, if this is if this is Gamaliel, the the Pharisee uh, teacher, who says God came and spoke to me today and said Jesus was the one. Well, and that yeah, that that's and if we and if we did that, then it would be at the cost of what. Of faith that the Lord intended for us to have faith if it was simply a matter of having having this work and that people would accept it then appear to the people that in the in that tradition would be most credible and that's not going to be women is rabbinic law still the same feeling about women as they did then if you go ultra orthodox like, like when we walk through the, the, uh, the neighborhoods, uh, they're just outside the walls of, of Jerusalem, and you walk through these very ultra-Orthodox, and they're not even driving cars, or doing bicycles, and, and they're the ones that are going to say, if we get on a bus, we don't want to take a chance that we're going to be sitting next to a woman. We have to be separated, even in our transportation, and in our synagogues. So yeah, there's some parts of Judaism, absolutely, where they're, they're holding 
to their tradition, holding to their laws the way that they always have. But uh, also on those, though, now you get into more reformed Judaism, and and yeah, they've they now you got women cantors and you got women speaking in in the synagogues. Yeah. I was thinking about the teaching what they think about the the Eve's role in the Garden of Eden. Would that possibly from the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve is portrayed as the sinner? Great point. She, she's talking about how would they have viewed Eve? If you're trying to figure out. Uh, how all of this fits, it, it does. I think it has its roots, Judy. I, I, I absolutely think it does. That if, 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 it was, if it was the woman that actually took the fruit, then she kind of spoiled everything for everybody else. And certainly none of that showed up at, at all in Christianity. The, the, the women were the ones that did this. You know, so, anyway. Well, I really appreciate this because it's always, I've always wondered why the apostles would not believe the women. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, hold on to that one. I mean, he's get, the Lord's going to set it up. He's going to set this thing up because he... Um, I think, uh, Wendy, I, I think it's in Lord of the Rings where, where, where they ask the wizard, Gandalf, you're late. And I think he says... What's the phrase? What's the, what's the quote? A wizard arrives precisely when he intends to. A, a, a wizard is never late. He arrives... Precisely when something like that. I'm trying to get it from the Lord of the Rings expert here. Anyway, the, 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 the phrase there is to, to, to Gandalf, you're late. And he says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he intends to, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And Jesus is not making mistakes here. He's, gonna, he's going to appear precisely who he intends to. Uh, never more, never less. There he is. Okay. And he's going to go right in the face of all this. Yeah. I have always found it interesting that, Luke, in my mind, Luke writing to Gentiles includes far more witnesses of women at the beginning and the. Doesn't he though? But Matthew writing to Jews. Doesn't. Yes. Oh yes. By the way, women were the ones that were there. Yes. Great catch. Great catch. Let me underline that. She's saying that for Matthew, Matthew is going to have, because Matthew is framing Jesus as a king, a very Jewish king, a mix of King David and Elijah and Moses, is how Matthew is trying to frame that. So he's going to do it in a very Jewish context, Matthew does. Luke, in writing to Gentiles, uh, is reaching out to women a lot, and by and again, he's right. Who who is holding the writings of Luke's? Uh, who is reading Luke's writings? Off, if it's if it's in uh, Macedonia, I'm telling you, it is. Um, I'm blocking on her name. Priscilla. Priscilla. It's Priscilla who's running the house church in Macedonia. She's the one, you know, there are women all over the place that are running the churches and stuff like that. They're very involved. So, yeah, Luke is going to say, I'm going to do this. And by the way, these aren't just women, women. These are oftentimes outcasts and, and uh, on the fringes. These are adulterous women and, and widows and single moms and all those kind of things. Yeah. Like when he declared his messiahship, 
to a woman, and not just a woman, but a Samaritan. There's another one, and I was going to actually pull that one up as well. So he's going to roll into Samaria, and he's going to declare on a one-on-one basis, everybody else is gone, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, and is set, in essence, she becomes the first missionary of, of the Savior, Okay, then go tell everybody else. So she goes in, she converts the whole village. But even then, at the end of that whole story of the women in the well, the the very last verse says, the man showed up, but they said, you said come see, but it was only after we listened to him that we believed you. You've got to stir it up. But. So, yeah. Before they changed the witnesses in the temple and and Mm -hmm. the church, I always thought that the two angels were Jesus's witnesses at the resurrection and then Mary was a mortal witness of his resurrection I just I was I'm unclear with how that worked unless they were helping him with the resurrection I don't know how that works some of the apocryphal writings talking about the resurrection identify the two angels at the tomb as Michael and Gabriel I believe that. That's where those traditions came from. So from an angel. And by the way, I think it's interesting that if you walked into the Holy of Holies and sat on the mercy seat, God's throne, what what is immediately on each side of him? Two two cherubim, two angels, two witnesses. Okay? Uh, So, of course, I've always believed that this is for gospel doctrine in a couple of months I've always believed that the angel that came to tell Nephi to quit beating his or to Laman and Lemuel to quit beating him with a rod I always figured that was a female it's like a mom going stop don't beat your brothers knock it off yeah is there grandma yes it could have been okay okay now now we're drifting far downstream okay okay so so let, let, let's step into this then. Uh, we're going to go to the book of Mark. Remember that Mark has, uh, by tradition, uh, has a short ending and a long ending. The, the shortest ending uh, is the, the, er, the, the oldest Greek manuscripts have it ending at verse 8 of the last chapter. And remember, Mark is a performance, so I want you to think about it in this context. And this is how Mark is going to tell the story in a play theatrically. And we've talked about this before, but let me just say it again. Okay? When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the the mother of Jacob, uh, Joseph, and Salome, brought spices in order that they might come and anoint him. They entered the tomb and saw a young man sitting at the right side, wearing a long white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, and he is not here. And here's where Mark's gospel ends in the oldest documents. Behold the place where you have laid him, but go tell his disciples. And Peter that he goes before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as I told you and they left and fled from the tomb for they were trembling and amazement had seized them and 
They did not tell anyone anything because they were afraid. Now, let me just remind for those we've talked about this before. What, what is the, why would Mark potentially end the story right here? This would be the closing line of the play and the curtain would come down. They, they, they were witnesses. Why would Mark end it here? You think? Because if he never implicates that there are other men who are credible witnesses right. see the event, it's not as threatening in a globe, in a player with other people watching. Because you can discredit the women who saw it and then just kind of end it there. You might. Yeah. Yeah. Brent? So he was working on a book deal for a sequel. <laughs> Spoken of like a true author. Think it like a like a screenplay. If if you're sitting in the audience and the last line to the play, and you've been following this thing a lot, and it goes, and amazement had seized them, and they did not tell anything, anyone anything because they were afraid. And the curtain comes down. What are you left with in the audience? Your own not only your own interpretation, but what are you supposed to do now? What will you do in the audience with the knowledge you just got? What will you do next? Will you be afraid and not tell anyone anything or what will you do? Will you walk out of this theater and keep this knowledge to yourself or will you go tell people? Will you be a witness? That's where we're going here. No, no. But I think Mark though is, is trying to use this device to say to the people in the audience sitting in Ephesus or sitting in Corinth. What are you going to do? Are you going to do the same thing as or are you going to be afraid and keep it to yourself or will you go preach the gospel? Will you go home tonight and tell your neighbor about the resurrected Christ? What will you do? Yeah. Will, will I be afraid? Or will I be a missionary? That's they would have been afraid. How do I go tell, I'm sitting in Ephesus. How do I go tell my pagan friend about a, res, about a crucified God who returned from the dead? How, how crazy is that? Because you've just listened to this whole story, all of Mark. Remember, over the, probably about, probably about uh, an hour and a half play playing all the way through here. Wow, he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and then they didn't tell anybody. What will you do? I think that would have been a hammer. Now, somewhere we think later, decades later maybe, writers, people that were reading Mark, either they found more material from Mark, or they, decide, they would add the longer version of Mark. Because the next... Line verse nine is part of the old is part of the, the what they call the longer version. You had a question? Um, no, I was just going to say 
what came to me before you know you said you know what would you do is uh, like if I didn't understand what was going on, I would want to dig a little deeper and find out more things. You know what what is you know maybe ask more questions. Yeah, I need to find out more. I like that. I I, I like that. Okay. All right. So here is the. Here's the longer ending. Look at what the first verse is of the longer ending. When he, arose, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And when she went out and told those that had been with him, while they were mourning and weeping, and when they heard that he was alive and was seen by her, they did not believe it. That even then, there are witnesses here of the greatest event in the history of all creation, and they're not going to be believed because they are women. First. Secondly, what you're attesting to is unbelievable, especially for a crucified man hung on a tree and buried. We know where he is now, right? Okay, so that, so that, that's that, that ending. Uh, so the questions that I think. So what was the significance of appearing first to women after the resurrection before appearing to the male apostles? Why would he do that? Because he could have chose. He could have appeared to precisely who he desired to. Yeah. Well, they were the ones that actually came to him. For one they thing, they, they, <laughs> yes. <laughs> tell me there, tell me there isn't a whole line or a talk on that. He appears to those who show up. <laughs> I think is much better than any answer I was coming up with. <laughs> he appears to those who show up. That's that's lovely. Okay. On secondary to that, <laughs> why else would he? Why he? Why would he show up to women? Why why would women be the first ones? He always honored women throughout his whole... He had honored women. Um, his whole teaching and mission. Okay. Out of honor. Mm -hmm. For the, everything that they had done. Luke says that the, the women patrons were the ones that kind of financed a lot of this and that they were following him around. He had a large female entourage that was helping, preparing things, stuff like that. So yeah, they were a big part of the, the process. Lowness of heart. Yes. Brother, they were underdogs. They were all of those things, and they were meek and lowly of heart. And those are the people that he would come to, not the ones that say, "Here I am, Lord." You know. Who does the Lord entrust His message to? The meek and lowly of heart, right? Those that are seeking Him, because Mary. Magdalene didn't show up with anything to do. She went there because she was grieving over the death of Sure. Right. Yeah, but you know, she, but she still could have he still could have appeared to Peter. Yeah. 
and she still could have done that. But the first one, the one that's going to have to carry, walk out of that area with the knowledge that he's gone. And now I have a mission to tell the brethren that he's gone and that he's going to meet them and he is resurrected. That's, that's he's trusting to a woman. Yeah. Nah, we haven't talked about it. Probably won't go there. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Whether he was married or not. The problem with men in, in first century Judaism is they needed to be married by the time they were about 21, 22, uh, which really clouds the issue for, for me. Uh, that was just what respectable men did. And he was a respectable uh, Jewish kid who would have been married very early. His mission doesn't start until he's about 30. So I don't know. It's, it's clouded. I don't know. It's possible he could have married somebody and then they died. or so. I, I, It's a good question. I, I'm more confused about it now than I have ever been. The more that I've studied. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The testimony of Mary, the testimony, yeah, where, where they're where they're giving Mary Magdalene a higher role, and that ups the chances. I mean, I don't think as LDS that it would shock us if we found out he was married, but but we need to make sure that that's not what we teach as our doctrine, because that is one of those things where we have received pushback from other Christian faiths saying Mormons teach that Jesus was married and he was a polygamist. Well, no, we don't. Orson Pratt, the literalist said that that was true, but not us. Uh, yes, pink lady in the back here. In the Book of Mormon, and I don't recall what, the, what Jack heard it was, there was a Lamanite woman named, I think her name was... Abish? Abish? Her father had had a remarkable dream. Yeah. She was a witness to the Lamanite. Good point. Good point. Fallen over in, you know, in awe of whatever it was that was going on at the time. And she goes around touching everyone and, 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 and raising them up and telling them what was going on, witnessing to them right. what had happened. So that is another, that's another instance of a woman being a witness. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says really clearly, by the uh, small things do great things happen? That he, that in, in, if he was going to restore the gospel, he didn't have to start with a 14-year-old uh, money-seeking backwoods kid on who to lay the restoration. But he did. He has always entrusted his message to what is sometimes seen as the weakest or the... the uh, the the, weak, the underdogs, right? Unsophisticated. The unsophisticated. But those that would be more open. To but because their their hearts are more open and they hear the message more clearly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's exactly why it is that he started with women. Not only were they the ones that showed up, and those were the ones that had the faith to hear him, but they were also going to be the meek and lowly who would then carry the message, like the woman at the well that carry the message of the gospel rolling forward. Um, I mean, wouldn't it, come on, wouldn't it make sense if we really wanted to roll missionary work forward? 
The last thing we would do would be to place missionary work in the hands of 18 and 19 year old kids who've been sleeping through seminary and, and, and have really very little knowledge and say, go get them. All of our next generation of converts are going to come through these guys. Wouldn't it make more sense to take some of the money we're putting somewhere else and hire professional salespeople who are mature and older and well-trained and send out a team of salespeople to bring people into the church? Doesn't that make more sense? If you're just simply wanting results? Wouldn't it make more sense if we would, hire, if we would pay for trained clergy who know who this is their 24-hour job and they're getting paid a great salary and we're making sure they have a master's degree in counseling and organizational behavior and we're going to make that person our bishop. Why are we going to give it to an accountant or a computer guy who, does, who has a hard time socializing in the first place? <laughs> and we're going to make that guy the bishop. Does that make sense? And then, and then we do, and then these guys blossom. And we take the women that are like, I'm just not sure I really like, to come to Relief Society, we make her the Relief Society president, and we say, you're in charge. You know, and she blossoms. And the church rolls forward on all of these imperfect people. Yeah? My patriarchal blessing talks about going to the bishop and it's and for counsel and it says that he may be young and inexperienced <laughs> your patriarchal blessing says that <laughs> that he will be young and inexperienced he will counsel you as a father and to me that means that he's inspired and can give me direction no matter what his back he's in He's, he's flawed and he's inexperienced and he's untrained and he's doing the best he can and, it's, and the inspiration and power comes to the meek and the lowly of heart. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. I guess I also think in, in a, I mean I completely agree with that that the apostles having gone through what I would view as a real trial or test of their faith and in their fear of being looked for, hunted, or reciprocity. Yeah, let's go fishing instead, right? So they're maybe in a weak moment, whereas these same women saw the raising of Lazarus, and they're maybe sitting there in a stronger position, spiritually. Their oh. faith is in a moment still stronger, perhaps, than some of the disciples who are being put through more of a test. And when they come back, I find it interesting in Luke that finally... Peter, after listening in that they don't believe him, right. suddenly Peter decides, I'm going to go look for myself. Yeah. He takes off. And I, because I sit and think, how does Peter feel at this moment after having denied the Savior and going through then sitting on it for several days and certain things? And then to have him suddenly look at these women and he's not believing, but then suddenly there's this like, yeah. maybe. Maybe yeah. I would go look for myself. I've always pictured the women kind of coming to a room of overthinkers. <laughs> and these guys are all like overanalyzing, you know, this doesn't make sense or anything. And, and the women just believed. Yeah. They saw, they heard, they felt, they knew, they believed, they testified. And the guys were in there going, I'm not sure. Let's think about it. what are the possibilities? What are the ramifications? I don't know. Let's get more research. You know, in an age, in an age 
where Peter didn't have Google, I'm not sure how it is he was going to get through this. <laughs> you know, so yeah. You know more about this than I do, but I think women tend to handle grief a different way sometimes. Use things with your hands. They saw there's a task to do. It might help us if we go there. I want to go there. I want to be there. And they can. Ha there's a certain emotional thing. Mm. It's not always true because the day of my mother's funeral, my dad went out early and had to and wash the car. Ah. Uh. So, uh, but I think everybody handles it a different way. She, she she was saying that she wonders if if the the women this is how they were grieving, you know. Um, it's, it's like with Brigham Young when he finds out that the the um, handcarts are out in the snowstorm in general conference, and he says he says to the guys. Uh, go gather the wagons, but then he turns to the women and he says, start baking. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to be hungry when they get in. Do what you do best as far as taking care of and serving and loving those that are struggling. Okay, so, yeah. Some of the women in that meeting took off their nylons and everything and were immediately ready to get their Yeah, they were. They were ready to go. That's a good point. She was serving and doing, and all she needed to reassure her spirit was a simple witness that what she was doing was right. Poor Mary Whitmer. She was just so overwhelmed. I mean, these guys were all at her house, and they're just like eating, like, and you got all these extra guests, and they're just, she's working her fingers to the bone. And what a tender mercy. But I think, too, with my mind's thinking, too, you know, men like to have um, just the nature of men and women. Men like to solve problems. They like to find yeah. solutions. They're very practical. Women, I think, lead with their hearts more and with their, with their spirits and being willing to receive that witness. I, being mm -hmm. a daughter of God, I feel so close to him sometimes because I feel like, you know, if you can just strengthen my spirit, I can do whatever you want me to do. Yeah. Great points. Okay. So I, I do find it interesting that Jesus... Why didn't Jesus have a second triumphal entry into Jerusalem the next day? From a marketing, PR, public relations standpoint, how many, how many uh, converts would they have gained if they turned around and they did it again? He, he's back. And here he is. You said, you said, and they all watched him die and now he shows up again. And he chose not to do that. We're back to the faith, right? Yeah, the same. He appeared on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. With his apostles and disciples. Yeah. Right. When we talk next week about the road to road to Emmaus, that even with them, he wasn't going to immediately jump in front of them and say, "I'm back." He he's, he's going to come to them slowly and and softly and gently. Yeah. Yeah, his second coming will be a little bit more that way, but it wasn't going to be there, right? Right, exact. Great point. Okay, so so let me just throw this in here. I just think it's interesting that we we have just we have just witnessed the wit the change in the witnessing. <laughs> okay, so what's the implication of the church changing the guidelines over who can witness ordinances? 
think the church is just getting smarter. <laughs> They're getting smarter. Yeah. Well, it isn't like we change doctrine, right? I think that um, you know the, the brethren are always looking ahead, and they they foresee the time coming when we've been told that the tempers will be busy day and night, and mm -hmm. it's more difficult to just have male witnesses because it requires right. Um, you know, more men to be um, in the ceiling. Right. I'm thinking of if if you if you read uh, President Kimball's book in 1961 he performed a baptism and guess who was the witness for the baptism Camilla Kimball yeah we, we are continuing to restore things that have been there all along how important are witnesses? And, and the fact that it can be anybody. Yeah. It also because Mary Magdalene was the first, the first woman that he saw. Christ right. So why in, in this time the woman had the all of Can't can be that first one to, to stand up and witness. To, to be a witness and I agree with that completely. Yeah. I think this is kind of a continuation of uh, the fact that the church is separating tradition and doctrine more and more. And as Great point. a worldwide church, Great um, point. we have to look very carefully that the, the teachings of the church are true doctrine and not just Utah culture or... Well, we're trying to say that witnesses aren't just priesthood holding men. We're trying to say that that witnessing of not just an ordinance but of the gospel and everything else continues to expand out. Don't try and limit the witnessing to who can do that. Yeah, Sister Jones? We wanted witnesses to stay awake. <laughs> 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 we, it, we need a witness today. Is there somebody who's not a high priest who's going to go to sleep on us? <laughs> not that you've ever witnessed that. <laughs> oh, that's really good, Steph. Yeah. Never married, and I think it was one of your studies, maybe, that said that eventually the married couples in the uh, church is going to be outnumbered by the single. Oh, they already are. are, they already are? Oh, they already are. This this changed my life dramatically because I'm a widow, and so it's like now I can witness my children being sealed. But what if? I mean, not only this, but there's other changes happening in the temple that include many of the single adults and allowing them to serve and witness. So in other words, we're expanding witnessing to make sure that nobody feels like they're not a witness, that we're all involved in this witnessing. And when you look at how important witnessing is, it needs to make sure that it doesn't look exclusive in any way. Yeah. I'm wondering if, you know, the continual restoration of the church is because the prophet is willing to pray about certain things, like when the blacks were received the priesthood. Um, the, the prophet was ready in a place of mind to pray about that and be open-minded to a new revelation. Yeah. And maybe that's what President Nelson was doing when the witnesses changed because he was willing to see it in a Because he's, he's open to change. He's okay. also wanting 
understand the extension of the powers of the temple yeah. beyond priesthood holders. Um, right. Yeah, we've been very traditional sometimes, and, and, and we look at how much of this is cultural. And I think part of President Nelson's prophetic genius is his ability to take a look at, here's what we have done traditionally, and is that necessarily doctrinal? Whoever. And we're going to look outside of that, right? To, to what exactly needs to happen, especially when we look at the needs of the church going forward. I, I was asked to be a witness for the first time on Wednesday. Yeah. And I go over and sit in the chair, and I'm just sitting there, you know, while I'll watch. And one of the brothers spoke up and said, these are the four things you watch for. And I'm going, oh, I'm so glad you told me. I had no clue. <laughs> <laughs> You'll learn. Well, we're getting there. Brent, you had to. So I was just going to say, under Moses, he was trying to prepare his people stand in the presence of the Lord. And they weren't ready. And so the Lord gave them some instructions that limited the uh, the entrance into the presence of the Lord to a fewer number of people. That wasn't the doctrine. Right. That was, that was expediency, that, right? That was the plan for the short term because they weren't ready yet for something else. And so Great. a lot of the things that we're dealing with are changes that have always been the case. Oh. Probably weren't ready for for whatever reason. If we do something in a ward once, it becomes tradition. That's the way it's just supposed to be done. Okay. Uh, so let me but let me just uh, in the time we got, let me just finish uh, kind of where I guess I was starting from, and maybe this is this is an appeal to continue in your gospel scholarship to kind of take in information from a lot of different sources. And I want to give you an example why it is that I think. Uh, this is one good example of that uh, that may change how you look at an event. Uh, John twenty seventeen, King James Version. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. Okay, and I've seen doctrinal explanations as to why she uh, she couldn't he, she couldn't touch him yet. Okay. Wayman's version. Jesus said to her, Do not hold me back, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Did you put that in there? Not yet. It's coming. Well, it, it's actually kind of a... Hold on to that one. Okay. Do not hold me back, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Okay. The NRSV. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Remember, all these are working off the Greek. It depends on how you read the Greek words. They're not just making it out of a whole cloth. They're looking at what the Greek words are saying and, and how it's applied in context and saying, based on the Greek words that are there, this is what we're getting. Okay, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Finally, the Septuagint, the original Greek one, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Okay? Now, add the Joe Smith version. He says, Hold me not. Hold me not. Yeah, in other words, the, 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 in, interpret what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. But before I hop in and say, This is what I think. What do you think? What are you hearing? 
She's already touched him. I mean, she's already tried maybe to hold him. I mean, she is... Think she's giving him a hug already? I think that perhaps she is emotionally moved and it would be, I mean, the woman... That think she gave gave him a hug yet? Yes. Yes. Immediately. Immediately. It's what she would do. Okay. What else is the implication to that? I can't stay. I can't stay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to my father. Don't hold on to me, like hoping that I will always be here. Because if, again, if we picture that, that, that Mary Magdalene is probably the Mary that anointed him, and she says, she's anointing me for my death, knowing that I'm going to be going. There's also a sense of not just, I'm holding on, not just like, stop hugging me, I don't like being hugged. <laughs> this, is, this is, you're going to have to let go of me because I have to go on to my father. Yeah. And you can't come where I'm going. And you're not going to be able to come, right? But she's thinking, I am never letting go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Wouldn't that be, he's back. I, I just watched you go through all of this suffering. I don't want to let you go. Uh, I, I want to go where you're going. And Peter kind of said some of the same, wherever you go, I want to go too. No, you really don't want to go where I'm going. And she, they may not have included her half of the discussion. That being very much part of it. Don't ever leave me again. Yeah. See, here's the fascinating part about this. This is coming from the book of John. And John is the insider. John, uh, wow. I was, for next time, I, I want to show you some of the intimate things that John, only John and somebody who was an eyewitness would have seen. This, this conversation, there's only two people there for this one. And John would have had to get the information from one or the other. So you're right. We're not getting the whole dialogue here. We're just getting a really short version. But Brent, I, I really like that idea uh, of, of the... Uh, once I've got him here, I, I don't want to let him go, ever. And, I, and I, think, I think in our own experience with the spirit and spiritual experiences, I, don't think, I think that's what we ought to have, right? I'm praying and I'm, getting, I'm feeling the spirit. I don't want to let go of this. I will pray longer. I don't, I don't get up off my knees that quickly. I'm going to stay stay with me and, and I, I think back to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi 17 mm-hmm. that he gets ready to leave and what do they do <laughs> tarry with us mm-hmm. don't, don't leave so fast tarry and all of the good stuff that happens to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi 17 all happens after he tarries the angels and the blessing and, and all the prayer and all that stuff is all after he tarried and was getting ready to leave so I, 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 there is symbolically her wanting to cling on to him, and you can't blame her at all for that. Yeah. So, so she didn't touch him. Yeah. That, that if you look at the Greek thing, that seems to be saying that not. In fact, there's a Luke is going to say there were two women that were holding on to his feet. So they were they were touching him. Traditionally, we have said, well, he couldn't touch. That's cultural, and that's not being borne out in in the Greek. Yeah. And I think, you know, prior to that, I have been touched by the fact that the first thing that he said, you know, she was kneeling, and he said her name. All he said was Mary. Mary. And she knew his voice. Yeah. 
if we could we could spend we could probably spend an hour and a half on this little exchange all by itself. Yeah. Wouldn't it be simpler if it says I, instead of I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I must ascend to the Father. Yeah, and and that might have been closer to what he was kind of saying. I still this still needs to happen. I'm going. I'm not going to be able to stay as much as you would like to have me stay. Uh, but I, I just think if you'll if you'll picture that almost a spontaneous act, Mary. And I'll bet, I'll bet there was a hug about that fast. That, I, I think, Maybe he would have liked to have stayed too. And I think he would have liked to have stayed too. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Uh, all right. So let's, uh, let's pick this up uh, next week. Uh, because this idea of the resurrection as it rolls forward into the dysphoria and out into Paul's travels, the idea of the resurrection is going to be a lightning rod for these churches and how they're going to respond. But um, I bury my testimony that this is the event. Uh, I, was, I was just listening to a, a, a conflict between two prominent scholars just this last week. And the, and the question was, was Jesus physically resurrected or not? It's a debate that continues to happen, even in the most believing Christian circles. Was Jesus resurrected or not? So, uh, th- th- this is the seminal event of history, uh, and I'm glad we're having a chance to take a look at it. And I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen.